The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. And let me invite you to grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, grab a pew Bible if you need one. It's on page 833. There are other page numbers there depending on what Bible you have. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. We're going to Matthew 27 because we're continuing in our series on the Apostles' Creed. We come this morning to what we have already confessed, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So, as you go to Matthew chapter 27, let me just make an observation, and uh, then we'll, we'll see how it plays out. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give the account of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, and all of the Gospels give a disproportionate amount of attention to the last week of Jesus' life. For example, John's Gospel spends half of the whole content focused on one week. Now, if you were going to write a book of the story of your life, maybe there would be particular seasons that you would spend extra attention on, extra time, but it might be an amazing thing to consider that one week could be so important in our lives. Nevertheless, the Bible's testimony is that Jesus Christ in his earthly life has his earthly life brought to an end by means of a Roman governor, by demand of Jewish authority, and all of this was according to God's purposes and plan. Now, as you're going to Matthew 27, and you're probably already there, but look back in your bulletin to the Apostles' Creed, if you don't mind, just a second. Peek back there and pay attention to what we're looking at this morning. When we confess the Apostles' Creed together, isn't it interesting that in the Apostles' Creed, it goes from, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and then right to His suffering and death. Isn't that interesting? From birth to death with nothing in between. When in reality, there's a lot that could be put there, right? All of Jesus' teachings, His miraculous healings. But the Apostles' Creed doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say anything about the calling of the disciples and the sending out of the disciples. It doesn't say anything about all of His teaching and all of His parables. It goes, Jesus is born, Jesus suffers and dies. And the reason why the Apostles' Creed does that is because it's following the same logic of the Gospel accounts which give ample attention to this last week of Jesus' life that the Jesus who was born of Mary is the Jesus who suffered and died under Pilate. Because Jesus, we could say, was born to die. His life doesn't make sense without the understanding of His suffering and death. Or we could also say, you can't remove the suffering and death of Jesus and still have a Savior. I mentioned last week that the Apostles' Creed works like a, a, a stack of blocks. You can't remove anything without the entire thing tumbling down. The suffering and death of Jesus is of infinite importance and we must understand what it means today. So if you've got your Bible ready in Matthew 27, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures this morning that we might grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
come now to your word, thankful that here you reveal yourself to us. We humble ourselves, acknowledging that uh, we approach the passion of our Lord Jesus, his suffering and death. Lord, this moves us in many ways, and so I pray that, that we would be moved not only in our heart, but in our soul, and also in our mind, to truly behold the wonders of Christ crucified for us. So, Lord, send your Spirit upon us that we might receive your word in faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 27. I'm going to be uh, skipping some sections, but I'll give you direction. But uh, hear now the word of God at Matthew 27 at verse 1. This is the word of God. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Pick up verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And may he write eternal truth upon our hearts. Today, we're staying in Matthew 27. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried? Uh, We're taking up this next section of the Apostles' Creed as we continue to affirm what the Creed says as it proclaims, I believe in Jesus Christ, and then goes on to proclaim all the necessary truths about the person and work of Jesus. That is to say, there's nothing that the creed says about Jesus that is not necessary for you to know, to believe, to trust in, and to hold dear in your heart. What does it mean? We're going to take each of these elements as a heading and ask, what does it mean? And why is it important that we believe it? That Jesus suffered, first of all, that he suffered, secondly, under Pontius Pilate, third, that he was crucified, fourth, that he died, and fifth, that he was buried. Five points, each one necessary. What does it mean that Jesus suffered? When you think of the word suffering, I imagine various things come to mind, but if you think of the sufferings of Jesus, it carries the obvious intention and connotation of bearing of pain. But the older use of the word suffering means to be an object of somebody else's action. To be an object of somebody else's action. That comes from the Latin word passus, where we get the word the passion of Christ. When we speak of the passion of Christ, we are speaking on the means of Jesus' suffering as he is acted upon as he receives suffering. And of course, when you think of the passion of Jesus, I imagine your mind goes to the early 2000s Mel Gibson film, and I'm not going to take that detour now, but we are thinking about the sufferings of Christ or the passions of Christ, the passion of Christ where each gospel account focuses so intently. (coughs) As you think about the passion of Christ, you are thinking about the means by which the Apostle Peter explains in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was delivered up 
according to the plan and purposes of God as he was crucified by lawless men. Who killed Jesus? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? The Bible says that it is according to the plan of God that lawless men receive Jesus and murder him. That means that Jesus' death is at the hands of guilty men, but it is according to the Father's perfect design. God's Word paints the Messiah, the picture of the Messiah, as one of a suffering servant, the prophet Isaiah says. So when you think about the sufferings of Jesus, what comes to mind? When I say Jesus' suffering, where does your mind go? Now, to be sure, the Apostles' Creed is especially focused on the cross-oriented sufferings of Jesus, the, the, the Good Friday sufferings of Jesus. But it's important for us to consider just momentarily that Jesus' entire life is a life of suffering. Jesus' entire life. The Creed already says it, actually, that Jesus lived a life of suffering, but it is even in His birth that Jesus suffers and enters humiliation. Think of it. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, is born into a poor family. Jesus is not born into a palace with all the riches of earth there to serve Him and put Him at comfort and ease. And at the very beginning of His earthly life, Jesus enters into the sufferings of condescension, the sufferings of humiliation, born in a stable, laid in a manger because there's no room for Him in an inn. His entire life is that of suffering. He has to escape early on with His family to Egypt to remain alive because Herod was after Him in order to murder Him at an early age. Which is why Jesus says later on in His earthly ministry, foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head which is an emphasis upon the entirety of Jesus' life as one of suffering, hunger, and loss, and sorrow, and the weight of sin throughout His life. It's not just in the final moments of Jesus' life that He suffers, but rather the entirety of His life. But the creed is in fact focused on the Friday sufferings, the cross-focused sufferings, where Jesus' suffering and death leads to our salvation. So, when you think about those sufferings, when you think about the cross of Jesus, what, what stirs in you? When you think of the suffering Savior, when you think of Jesus bearing wounds, what do you think of? Lots, lots of things, probably. Jesus suffered for us. We're flooded with lots of different emotions. But let me say at least two things that we should really focus on when we consider the sufferings of Jesus. And the first one is this reality that when you look upon the sufferings of Jesus and His death on the cross, you should say, this is what my sin deserves. This is what my sin requires the debt of my sin that I incur to a holy God must be paid. This is how guilty I am. Think of it this way. Jesus does not suffer more than He deserves. He suffers all 
that we deserve. Jesus in his sufferings bears our sins, bears the weight and curse of God's wrath toward us. He empties the cup of God's wrath, drinks it to the last drop so that God can be gracious to you. He is not gracious to his son, but rather pours out the fullness of his fury in divine wrath upon Jesus because that's what my sin requires. We should say that. We should also say that Jesus is there in my place. I want you to notice a few things in Matthew 27. I want you to notice how often the word delivered is used. It's used in the title heading of chapter 27, but of course that's added later on. But in Matthew 27 verse 1, it is with reference to the fact that Jesus has been handed over to the Jewish authorities by Judas. Judas betrays Jesus and delivers Jesus over to the authorities. And then in Matthew 27, verse 2, the Jews then deliver Jesus over to Pilate. Jesus is being delivered all throughout this chapter from Judas to the Jews, from Jews to Pilate. And then in Matthew 27, verse 18, it tells us that Pilate knows Pilate knows why the Jews have delivered Jesus to him. And then also in verse 26, it speaks of Pilate delivering Jesus over to be crucified. It is like this resounding theme. Jesus is being delivered over, delivered over, delivered over because Jesus is being delivered so that he can deliver you. So that you can be forgiven. Jesus in his sufferings, say, this is what my sin deserves as he is being delivered over in my place. Jesus suffers. But secondly, there's also this note in the creed, the very important uh, emphasis, that the creed places an emphasis not just on the sufferings of Jesus, but the sufferings of Jesus under Pontius Pilate. The creed is reminding us here of the very concrete historical circumstances of Christ's sufferings. Just like the gospel narratives tell of Jesus' life, Luke chapter 2, in the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went out when Quirinius was governor. The Apostles' Creed is doing the same thing by locating the sufferings of Christ in real history. When Pontius Pilate is the governor, the procurator of Judea, by naming Pilate, the Creed is saying, and the Christian church is saying, the Bible's testimony is that Jesus lived and died in real history, real true history. You should pay attention to the fact that the only people the creed names are Mary and Pilate, besides the triune God. And that is of incredible consequence to say that the gospel is not a once upon a time fable. It's not a myth. It's not an illustration. It's not a fabrication. This would be like Somebody saying a criminal was executed in Illinois in the days when Pritzker is governor. It's the same thing. It is a historical identification to say real history. Our Lord and Savior died in real concrete history under Pontius Pilate. Pilate was only governor for about seven or eight years, and so it locates a particular time under which Jesus suffered under his rule. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then 
the creed reminds us that he was crucified. As we've read together in Matthew 28 to 27, every gospel account focuses especially on this. You see the narrative of the crucifixion there at verse 32 and following. And what the creed is doing as it calls out the crucifixion of Jesus is it says that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who condescends to enter into our world and bearing the weight of humanity, in His humanity, suffers the execution of Roman crucifixion as a means of His execution. Crucifixion is reserved for the worst of Roman criminals as a means of public scorn and embarrassment. It is a uniquely horrendous thing as we read about the nails that pierce His hands and feet. Jesus dies by order of crucifixion in public scorn outside the walls of Jerusalem and it is all significant as He bears the anathema and curse of God. As He bears our sin, Jesus is looked upon and publicly mocked and publicly scorned as He dies a shameful death. And the cross is the instrument of this punishment. The instrument of this incredible physical pain. When you read the details of the passage, when you read about the ripping of the clothes and the shoving on upon the crown of thorns and the whipping and the scourging, you, you can unfathomably perhaps though attempt to enter into the realities of the physical sufferings of Jesus at the cross. The cross was such a horrendous death that a new word is invented to describe it. The term excruciating is invented to describe crucifixion because it is rooted in the term ex crux, out of the cross, excruciating. A new word is invented to describe the horrendous pain and sufferings of the death of crucifixion, but the physical sufferings of Jesus pale in comparison to the reality of what Jesus is bearing spiritually. When Jesus dies by crucifixion, He does not only bear the fullness of this agony of excruciating physical pain, but He is bearing the weight of the fury of the wrath of His Father that your sin and my sin deserves. The spiritual agony of Christ in His crucifixion. By this, the Bible says, we are redeemed. The creed presses upon us the necessary meditations of the sufferings and crucifixion of Christ, which result in, in the fourth place, His death. The creed said, Jesus died. You might think that to be an unnecessary addition, but it is actually a necessary place of emphasis. We see in Christ's humiliation the full succumbing to the power of humiliation as he succumbs to the power of death. Because the creed is determined to say, Jesus died, and he really died, and he truly died. Because you can read later on in the Gospel accounts that even right away, people were attempting to try to deny this reality. Oh, Jesus didn't really die. They, they took him down from the cross before he was actually died and revived him. That's why he's able to say he's been resurrected. And people are constantly attempting to deny the reality of the death of Jesus. In fact, uh, Islam says that right before they were going to crucify Jesus, his spirit went to heaven so he didn't actually die. 
He wasn't really human, or he only appeared to be human, and so he didn't really die, so they couldn't really crucify him. People have been attempting to deny the reality of the death of Christ from the beginning. But the creed says, and the church declares, the Bible teaches, Christ really, truly died. Your Savior truly died. Why is that so important? Because you will die. sobering thought for the Lord's Day, isn't it? But a necessary one. You will die. And Christ has also truly died. What will become of your death because Christ has died? We think of that as we think about the final point that the creed makes, that he was buried. Creed goes on to say that he was buried. It's the way of continuing to emphasize the, the confirmation of the totality and the reality of the Lord's death. He has a real body, and by his real bodily death, he goes into the tomb, laid in a tomb, just like everybody else who dies. There are these tender words in Matthew's Gospel, especially in verse 60, when this man Joseph of Arimathea comes onto the scene, who's a follower of Jesus, who goes to Pilate and requests the body Pilate, give him to me, buries Jesus in his own tomb. Joseph could have lost everything, his entirety of his public reputation, but he wants to honor Jesus by giving him a proper burial. There's this beautiful way that the Bible puts it, still, like I said in verse 60, that Joseph lays Jesus in his own tomb. He laid Jesus' body in his own tomb. Why? Why this point of emphasis on burial? Because just like the sufferings, just like the death, the burial is a necessary part of the humiliation of Christ. That because the wages of sin is death, Jesus truly dies. And as he truly dies, he is truly buried. Again, why? Because you will be buried. Loved ones, one day, your body will return to the ground. Maybe by one means or the other, we are going to die. And maybe it will be me, or maybe it will be another minister of the gospel who will stand at your grave and say, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, we commit to Almighty God, our servant. And at that moment, what is true? What is true about that moment for the Christian believer who dies, who falls asleep in Jesus Christ? The creed said Jesus is buried. The Bible says that Jesus is buried and in so doing declares that the grave is not a lonely place for the Christian because our Savior has already been there. The Christian believer is not alone as their body is committed to the ground because our Savior has sanctified the grave for all the saints, bearing it with us. Our Savior has already been there. He was also buried, the creed says, the Bible says. He sanctifies the grave. He removes the pain and the loneliness of death so that we say the Christian falls asleep in Christ. 
And we anticipate the truth that we know is coming in the creed that Jesus vanquishes the grave of all of its power by His glorious resurrection. But before we get there, before you get to the good news of Easter and the proclamation of the resurrection and the glory of the ascension, the creed says, the Bible says, you need to stop. You need to stop right where you are and think about your Savior in His suffering, in His death, in His burial. We need to linger upon it. And speaking for myself, most most of the significant spiritual growth in my life has happened by way of contemplating the infinite glories of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What love is this? Can you find yourself pondering that reality that Jesus should die for you? Why? Because you're better than your neighbor? Because you're more righteous than they? Because you love God more than they do? No. Why has Jesus loved you and died for you? The Bible says God loved you and gave His Son for you. And hymn writers, they help us in our reflection of this. I was saying to the Sunday school class this morning, most of my favorite hymnody in the Christian tradition is focused on these themes, the passion of Christ, the sufferings and death of Christ as He bears the weights of our sin. But in just a moment, we're going to sing one together. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing upon the cross of Jesus, mine eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And there, there I see two wonders. The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. The fastest way to make sure that you don't understand the gospel. The fastest way to guarantee that you don't get it is to look at the cross and say, I deserve that Jesus should die for me because I'm such a wonderful person. It's good and right that I be the first one in line. But we make sense of the gospel when we look upon the cross of Christ and we say, Oh my Lord and oh my Savior, how can it be that you should love me? There is nothing that I have done. There is nothing that I have procured. There is nothing that I am worth. There is nothing in my own self-righteousness that makes me deserve. And yet you love me still. So what better response could there be for you today than to say with the creed and to affirm with the Scriptures, I believe in Jesus Christ. And then to take the emblems of your Savior's dying love and say, I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered and died and who was buried for me and for you. Not because you deserve it, but because God is full of grace and mercy for you. Let us confess it together as we pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world indeed to suffer for us to die for us, to be crucified, scorned, mocked, and buried for us. How staggering the love and yet how great the truth 
we shall spend the entirety of our earthly lives and yet also the infinite eternal ages of the new heavens declaring worthy is the lamb who was slain so lord bless us as we meditate upon the sufferings of jesus and also as we receive the sacrament in faith we pray in jesus name amen thank you for listening to this sermon if you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.